Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. There's one thing about the Apostle Peter that sets him apart, that makes him an appealing character, among other things, as we read through the Bible. It, it, it must be that, that Peter is a man of action. And Peter was a fisherman. He was an outdoorsman, weathered by the sun and the sea. The, the niceties of intellectual debate were not for this guy. He was a man of action. He did things. He made things happen. There was a, a practicality to him that, that I think exudes. He acted first, often and spoke first without thinking. And even in that, sometimes, when he got himself into trouble, there is something admirable because, as we've reflected before about Peter, he does the things we want to do and says the things we want to say, only we know better than to do them or say them in front of everybody else. It's good to have people like that in your life, people of action, people who will do things. And oftentimes, when we think of ourselves, when we think about the kinds of people we know, we make distinctions like this. We know some cerebral, intellectual people who love to think about things and, and uh, qualify things to death, and they never seem to get anything done. So you need those other kinds of people if you're ever going to, to accomplish anything. So as we turn to this man of action... We try to understand what it was about Peter, what it was about him that made it possible for him to act in the way that he did, to do the kinds of things he did. And we look for some kind of practical advice from him to follow. We find these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is starting in verse 13, and our text is going to extend through verse 21. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's time to prepare your minds for action, Peter says. To prepare your minds for action. But there's something interesting here. Because not only does Peter talk about action, but he talks about a connection between action and knowledge. A connection between what we do and, and what we know. True Christian practice flows from true Christian knowledge. What you do 
according to Peter, actually depends on what you know. I think you can see this in this text, especially if you indulge me a little bit and we uh, um, flip it around. If you look in the text, in the paragraph that you have before you in your order of worship, you'll find approximately halfway through, there's a shift. We start with action, and then Peter says, knowing, knowing these things, knowing these things. This happens in verse 18. It's almost as if what Peter is saying in this paragraph is something like this. You should do this because you know that. He's illustrating a connection that what we do, what action we take, the kind of action we prepare ourselves, that action depends on what we know. It depends on our knowledge. That you can't separate the two. It's not possible as, as Christians to be uh, people of action without also being people of knowledge. The reverse is true as well. God hasn't called us to be people of knowledge and no action. So these two things go together. So what is the knowledge that should shape the Christian life? If we uh, flip the text around, we're actually going to begin in the second part, and then we'll go back to the first part. So we'll look at the, the why, and then we'll look at the what. So what is the knowledge that we ought to have? What is it that we know? Peter says, we know that you were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. This knowledge of ransom is one of the things that should drive us to action. Now, when we think about ransom and paying ransom, really the only context in which you would pay ransom today is, is to kidnappers, right? If uh, you make enough money in life to buy yourself a sailboat and you decide to sail around the world and you decide to sail in, in areas where you, you go too close to the shore and pirates come out and seize you, which still happens, then a ransom would need to be paid in order to secure you. That's not the kind of ransom that Peter has in mind. It's not the kind of ransom that is in mind when we speak of Christ's sacrifice as being a ransom. This isn't the kind of ransom that is paid to a wrongdoer because he happened to see something valuable. This is the kind of payment that is made to the offending party. The kind of payment that is made to compensate for the wrong that has been done. The injured party is God. Our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, the turning away of, of humanity from His ways is an offense to Him. It is an injury to Him. It is damage done. And the ransom that has been paid for us by the precious blood of Christ is a payment made to compensate to atone for that damage that is done. The death of Christ, Peter is saying, is a sacrifice made to compensate for a wrong that was done. We ought to be the ones to pay that price. But because Christ comes to pay it for us, we don't have to. Because frankly, we're incapable of, of paying for the damage that we've done. You broke it, you bought it, we say. We broke something we don't have the means to buy. And so a greater one than us must pay the price. This is one thing we know 
as believers that should color all that we do for Him. What else do we know? Peter says of Christ that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. We know this, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Already in 1 Peter 1, Peter has talked about this idea that that God possesses a foreknowledge that is behind all that has taken place. Now, when we think about that word, especially when we hear it in English, uh, the way that you would expect to interpret it would be something like, okay, foreknowledge is to know beforehand. So foreknowledge means advanced information about what is going to take place. If you know someone well enough and you've studied their patterns of behavior well enough, then we might say that you have, to some degree, a kind of foreknowledge, a a predictive ability of what will come to pass in the future. And so we often tell ourselves that what the Bible intends when it refers to the foreknowledge of God is that God, because of his vast intelligence, because of his great power, his understanding, his depth of knowing, is able to anticipate all the various things we might conceivably do. And while for us, the the history of humanity might branch out in many different contingencies, many different separate possible realities, God, because of his greatness, is able to see every tendril on on every branch of every tree and know all of it and and know with, with some kind of certainty which path will be taken, his advanced knowledge. But the way Peter uses the term here, you see that there's something else going on. Because we're told not that we are foreknown, but that Christ, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now this phrase, the foundation of the world, is one that Paul uses famously in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, when he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, at the beginning, before the beginning, if you like, way back in an inconceivable to us place on the timeline, before there was a timeline, before that, the world, its founding, he foreknew. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But he also foreknew Christ before the foundation of the world. Not that God knew all of the contingencies well enough that he supposed that someone like Christ must come along just that he knew him back then. Right? He was present. He was there. The kind of knowledge is not like an advanced knowledge of information. It, it's a personal knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge Paul speaks of at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. Paul is aware that he doesn't know God fully, but he's equally aware that God does fully know him and always has before the foundation of the world. This is the way in which Christ is known. He's known as a person with identity, with presence before the foundation of the world. It speaks to us of something richer in the knowledge of God than mere anticipation. It's not just a really good predictor of what might come to pass, but rather he knew us as he knew Christ before the foundation of the world. But it was now that he was made manifest. Peter says, yes, Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest now 
in these last times, these last days. And that tells us something else, an interesting phrase. Because when we think about the last days or the end times, we think about a coming apocalypse. Right? The world goes terribly bad. It was, uh, in my childhood, it was nuclear apocalypse. Now it's a zombie apocalypse in the future, uh, or ecological apocalypse if you prefer. But the future, we will have new last days to anticipate. But Peter lived in the last days. They had already come. And the fact that he uses language in that way ought to suggest to us that that the way we're seeing these things aren't exactly, uh, the ways in which we're seeing them aren't the same as the ways that he sees them. He thinks the days he lives in are those days. Now, one possibility is he's just wrong. Like Peter got it wrong. He thought, wow, we're in the last days, but it turns out there were so many days to come afterwards, and he just didn't realize wasn't a scholar. He hadn't studied a lot. He just didn't know. Or there's another possibility. And it's this, that from the time of Christ's first coming, we've been living in the last days. Like the world as it was before, the world as it was from Adam through Moses to Christ, those were those days, but these are the latter days where Christ has come. Now, these latter days have gone on in duration. And there were earlier last days, and there will be later last days. But the time we're living in is an eschatological time. The time that we're living in is straining forward towards a fulfillment. Right? This is where, when we use that term already and not yet, that's what we're talking about. Right? We live in last days, in final days already, although we have not yet reached their end. This is a thing we know. Because of the work of Christ. If you continue, we also know this, that our belief comes through Christ. We believe in God through Christ, Peter says. We believe through Him. To believe in Christ is to believe in God. Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. There's no other way to believe in God except through Him. Both the Son and the Father are fully God. There is no way to believe in God apart from Jesus. And that's true in terms of His person, but it's true in terms of His power as well. The power to believe comes from Him. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's in John 5. In the next chapter, John 6, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The time is coming and is now here when the dead will hear and be raised. Who is he speaking about? Who are the dead that are raised by the power of his voice? He's speaking of us. Dead in sin and made alive in him through his power. What else do we know about him? Peter says, God raised him up and glorified him. And this is why our faith and hope, Peter says, are in God. We see what he did to Jesus. We see what the Father did for the Son, and our hope and our faith for ourselves is based on the treatment that Christ received. And the point is this, when you look at what the Father does for the Son, you can be confident 
of what He will do for you. So follow the Son. Follow the Son. So what does that look like, following the Son? That's where the action comes into play. And Peter says, prepare your minds for action. The action he has in mind is the action of following. It's time to follow Jesus. It's time to do it. Not to theorize about it, to think about it, but to do it, to actually follow Him. So what should the knowledge that we have lead us to do? Now we're going back to the beginning of our text and seeing that we should set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, he says, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, Peter is pushing us forward. We saw this earlier where where Paul will often look retrospectively at the work that Christ has already accomplished. Peter is often going to point us forward to the work that Jesus has promised to do that is not yet complete. He points us forward to that and says, set your hope fully on that. When Christ comes again, when he is fully revealed, what he will do there, that's, that's what your hope should be set on, and it should be set on it fully. Fully, I think, is the word. The Christian hope is a future hope. Right? It's a hope that we have in good things to come. But it must be set fully on Christ and not partly. It must be fully set on Christ and not on anything else. The point of saying set your hope fully is to say that our hope must not be set elsewhere, which is the hard part. I think it's probably fair to say that that everyone who is a believer, everyone who is in Christ, who confesses Him as Lord, has some hope in Him. Otherwise, why would you do it? We all have some kind of hope in Jesus. We all have some degree of hope in Him. But most of us are like, um, you know, people standing at the roulette wheel. And as we watch it turn, you don't have to put all your chips on, on like one number. You can spread them around. And so we've got a nice stack. Some of us, quite a, quite a big stack of chips on the Jesus square. And as the wheel turns, we look at the rest of our chips and we put a few of those over here and a few of those over there, a few over there, but we've got a lot over on Jesus. And, and sometimes if, if we're worried that maybe we're not, we're not setting our sights on him fully enough, we move a few more chips over there so that it looks like even more imbalanced in favor of Jesus. And what, what Peter is saying is that, that when you're at the casino of life, remember that as a Christian, you don't believe in chance. Put all of them on Christ. Trust that when the wheel turns around, Christ will be the answer. Have your hope set fully on Him. Undivided. Now, we do hope in Christ, but we hope in so much else. We hope in so many other things. And I think the path to maturity in Christ is often learning to wean ourselves off of those secondary hopes. And the way you see them, certainly the way I see them in my own life, is I see the things that cause me anxiety. I see where my fears are stoked. We talked earlier about the ordination process and the uncertainties. Well, this is a very uh, high and, and, and 
and holy process, and a person going through it should have his hope set fully on Christ. But as someone who's gone through it, I can tell you that, that there were moments when my chips were spread all across the table. I had, I had a lot on Jesus, and I had a few on Dave, hoping that he would make a really good speech on the floor of Presbytery, which he did. I had chips on a lot of other pastors that I know. I had chips on all sorts of things. I had chips on bad weather, keeping away people who don't like me when the meeting came. And it seemed like the more those chips were spread, the less I had to worry, and it wasn't that way at all. The moments of doubt, the moments of worry and anxiety, the sleeplessness that I experienced, and Lori can attest to this, it wasn't when I was sleeping up, sleeping up, sitting up late at night, not sleeping, wondering, oh, is Jesus going to keep his promises? Will Jesus be faithful? It wasn't when I was praying, thy will be done, that I worried. It was when I was praying, my will be done, or thy will be done. When I worried about myself, or I worried about your expectations, I worried a lot. I didn't want to fail, and I didn't want to let you down. And the only time I didn't worry... The only time I slept at night is when I reminded myself that it was all in His hands. That it was all up to Him. That regardless of the outcome, Thy will be done. It would all be to His honor and glory. Whether uh, He gave us what we wanted or He told us that what we wanted was not the thing to want. That His plan was something else. When I had peace with that, when I set my hope fully on Him, I didn't fear the way that I did when my hopes strayed. If you want to take action in the Christian life, follow after Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And don't be content to set it mostly on Him. Don't be content to be fearful because it seems like everybody around you is fearful. Set your hope fully on Christ. And then it gets harder. Peter keeps going. And he says, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. Which is a really high standard. Not most of your conduct. Not the majority of your conduct. But in all of your conduct, in everything that you do, be holy. And he quotes the book of Leviticus. Nobody who quotes the book of Leviticus is ever looking to let you off the hook. Right? Like when we're preaching grace, Leviticus, it never comes up. Right? We're just never going to Leviticus to set your mind at ease. But this is exactly where Peter goes. He goes to Leviticus. He says, be holy as I am holy. And you're like, "Uh, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do that. It's interesting to me, if you go back to Leviticus 11.44, which is who he's quoting here, what he's quoting here, Leviticus 11.44, you'll find a paragraph of instruction about not eating bugs. Yeah, the Bible has a whole paragraph. It's in Leviticus about how you shouldn't eat bugs. So kids, (laughs) don't eat bugs. Don't eat things, it says, that swarm on the ground. I wasn't tempted. That one I can keep. 
That one I can keep. But in the midst of this instruction about not eating things that swarm on the ground, God says, be ye holy as I am holy. Like there's, there's an unholiness, there's an uncleanness that comes from this. And as I read that, I read it analogically. I read it metaphorically as well as literally. I don't want to eat bugs. Uh, but I also don't want to consume, feed myself, be sustained by swarming things. The fears, the mindsets, the mentalities that swarm all around me, I don't want to fly with them low to the ground. I don't want to be nourished by these swarming things. Jesus didn't die to set a good example for us to follow, but He was a good example for us to follow. An example of holiness that we should seek to imitate. The problem is, when you look at the life of Jesus, you're never going to say, "All right, I can do it. You're never going to look at the example of Jesus and say, okay, good, I'm ready to go. Instead, you look at Jesus and you think that's impossible. We look at Jesus, we see it's impossible to be like Him, and so uh, we set a different standard. Or we look at Jesus and we see it's impossible to be like Him, and then we despair. But we shouldn't set a different standard. We shouldn't despair. We should just follow Him. Just follow Him. Follow the call to be holy as He is holy. Whether you can do it or not, whether you fail at it or not, just keep following Him. Peter says, this last action step he gives us, this is verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And the time of your exile is your life in this world. We've seen this as Christians. We are elect exiles. And we live in this exile, and the question that we often struggle with is how to live. He's telling us, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, he says, you believe in a holy God. You, you proclaim faith to a God who judges justly. So you should act like that. You shouldn't say, well, I believe in, in a just God, but because I'm saved by grace, I'm going to be unjust. And that'll be fine. No. Live in imitation of the holy and just God you believe in. Live in fear. Now, I know we've been told that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself which seems like something somebody says if nobody's ever punched them. right? There's a lot to fear besides fear itself. And the people oftentimes who have a lot to fear don't fear at all. They're oblivious and then they get punched. right? There are real things to be worried about. right? There are real, fear is not an illusion. Like the, the things we're worried about, the anxieties that we have, the, the bad things that happen all around us, those are not illusions that we need to transcend so that we won't be fearful. That's not the idea. I'm not saying to you that, that Peter says you should, you should think positively. And I know everybody's so negative, but, but you should just be positive about the world. When you find yourself being positive about the world, be certain that you're blind to what it really is. What I'm saying is, see it for what it is, but don't fear it. Fear the one who overcomes it. Have reverent awe, a life of reverent awe for the one who overcomes everything that we fear. We are surrounded 
by fear, surrounded by fearful people because we are surrounded by people whose hope is in saviors who cannot possibly deliver what they promise. Not only are people fearful, but they are right to be fearful. Because everything they have, everything they care about, everything they hope for is invested in something that cannot possibly deliver or fulfill. But that shouldn't be us. We should be fearful, but not in that way. The fear we should have is the fear of the Lord, the reverent awe for Him that recognizes Him for what and who He is. The exile who fears the Lord does not need to fear anything else. What you know will influence what you do. What you do really does depend on what you know, Peter says. Peter also says this, you have to break with your past before your past breaks you. You have a history that threatens you. And you've got to break from it. History can bring you life, but it can also bring you death. Last time we saw in in the last paragraph, verses 10 through 12, the way in which history can bring life. Peter pointed us back to the prophets. He pointed us back to the apostles, to our ancestors in the faith who carried the truth down to be revealed in this time. There is a whole history of redemption standing behind us, and it's a history of life, and it's good, but there's another history standing behind us too, and it's a history of death, of condemnation. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's flattering us, right? There's still some present ignorance. But the former ignorance that he has in mind is is something really specific. It's the same kind of thing that Paul talks about in Romans 12 a little differently when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What Peter is saying is, is that before Christ, you were governed by sinful impulses. You had within you a, a death that was acting itself out. And it ruled over you. And you thought of it as freedom. You thought of yourself as free. But what that was was a kind of conformity. And now that you're in Christ, do not be conformed to it. Don't be conformed to your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world all around you. When we talk about what it means to be free, when we talk about what it means to be a free thinker, we get it entirely wrong. To be truly free is to be enabled to be who you are. To be what you were meant to be, to fulfill your purpose. And what prevents you from doing that is not freedom, it's a kind of bondage. A kind of slavery or conformity. For Paul in Romans 12 is telling us to free ourselves from the present for the sake of the future. Here Peter is telling us to free ourselves from the past. For the sake of the present, don't live in the shadow of your former ignorance. Don't keep making the same decisions. Don't keep living according to the same values. As elect exiles, you have an experience of living in a world that you can't rely on for moral direction. 
that you can't rely on for clarity, that you can't rely on for affirmation. And when you receive moral clarity and you receive affirmation from that world, you should at least be a little suspect. Scrutinize it a little bit. Because oftentimes what we cheer the loudest is not what's good. Peter says later on in the passage in verse 18 that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. There is a wisdom that is passed down over the ages, a wisdom the Bible speaks of as the wisdom of man. It seems right to us. It makes sense to us. It seems like common sense, self-evident, and yet it isn't. And we must break from it. We're being called to step away from what we've inherited. The, the cultural assumptions, the, the truths, the great lessons that have been passed down, all of those things should be scrutinized through the lens of Christ so that the futile ways that we've inherited, we can turn our backs on. I think the biggest temptation that we feel as, as believers, speaking for myself certainly, it's, it's the desire to be seen as credible, as respectable, as, as, um, as, as an intelligent person. It doesn't pain me when people disagree with me. It pains me when they think I'm an idiot. When they don't at least grant that, that I have my reasons, that I'm not just stupid. I mean, that, that there's some rationale. And so I try hard sometimes when I, I, I'm speaking to people that I know think my faith is ridiculous. I, I, I want to show them, hey, you know what? At least I'm, I'm smart. You know, we read a lot of the same books. We actually admire a lot of the same things. And, and, and don't judge me too harshly. We try to accommodate ourselves and our faith in order to be accepted. We accommodate ourselves to those futile ways. And I'm not saying that, that we should strive to be unliked or unlikable. I'm just saying that whether we're liked or not liked shouldn't matter to us as much as whether we are following Him. I think we should stop wasting time worrying about these kinds of approval and pursue holiness instead. Follow Jesus instead. Come what may. We have to break with our past, not just with, with past habits, but sometimes past dreams in order to follow Him. If we want to pursue holiness, if we want to live the spotless life that we were called to, we should live a spotless life, which I hope makes you nervous. Maybe not the first time today you've been nervous in this service. It's good to be nervous in the service of Christ. He should make us uncomfortable from time to time, if not constantly. And when I say to you, you should live a spotless life, I hope that doesn't not trouble you. It troubles me. But there's some hope. Because there's no spotless life apart from the spotless Lamb. As Peter speaks to us of our knowledge of Jesus Christ, he speaks to us of a ransom, of blood that was shed, of a lamb that was slain. That spotless lamb is the one that gives us the power to live as we should. 
Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything to follow Christ. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, and it's a pretty big promise to make to an old guy with no children. He says, from you, I'm going to make a, a vast tribe. Countless inheritance out of you. That's the promise that is made in Genesis 15. And we as Christians look back and we recognize the fulfillment of that promise as Christ. Right? Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Who is Christ. So when God promises Abraham that out of him all the nations will be blessed, that he will raise up this people promising him Christ and what Christ does and bringing to himself people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred. That's the fulfillment of the promise. But there was also an immediate fulfillment and his name was Isaac. And Abraham began to see the fulfillment of the promise immediately. He had a little already not yet in his life. And the already was Isaac. This beloved, belated son who he didn't thought was going to come, and he took some measures that he ought not to have taken in order to, to, to help God along in the fulfillment of his promises. And now he has Isaac, this beloved son, and God says, sacrifice him. God says, take him up onto the mountain and sacrifice him. It's an uncomfortable moment in the life of Abraham. Um, it's easy for us in Sunday school to look back at this story and say, well... Abraham knew God didn't really intend for this to happen because God would never do such a thing. Uh, God isn't worshipped through human sacrifice. Abraham didn't know that. He'd been called out of Ur of Chaldees and brought to this new land. He had no idea. God was revealing to him all the time the way in which he was going to be worshipped. Uh, circumcision, right? That was new and uncomfortable. So here's Isaac. He's told to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be, but he takes him up and sacrifices him, or at least intends to. And as he brings him up, he says these words. He says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. If you know uh, Soren Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling, it begins with Kierkegaard telling this story over and over again, trying to get into the mind of Abraham. What was Abraham thinking? What would lead a person to, to, to act with the confidence that Abraham acts with? And, and for Kierkegaard, it's, it's quite a mystery. But for the author of Hebrews, it's not. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because the reason why Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac is he thought, oh, well, God could just raise him from the dead. I don't want my dad thinking along these terms, right? But this is a faith that Abraham has, that a promise has been made and it will be kept. And he believes that, the author of Hebrews says, to such an extent that he's willing to sacrifice the fulfillment of the promise. But God does indeed provide a lamb. A substitute. Isaac isn't sacrificed. That substitute is sacrifice that God has provided. And when in Genesis 22, 8, 
Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That's a shadow of things to come. Because God provides Jesus Christ as a lamb. Jesus Christ who's sacrificed and who is received back from the dead, not figuratively, as the author of Hebrews says of Isaac, but literally, Christ is received back from the dead. This is what Peter is getting at at the end of our passage in verse 21 when he says that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's because you know the lamb, the spotless lamb, that you would even dare to attempt to live a spotless life. That beautiful moment in Romans 5 when John standing in the presence of God, sees that no one gathered together in God's presence, no angel, no dignitary, is deemed worthy to open the seals of the scroll. And he is so distraught when he realizes it, that no one, even even the, the inner circle of God, none of them have the power to do this. That he weeps bitterly at the impossibility of it. One of the elders comes and and speaks comfort to him. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he turns to see the lion. He doesn't find Aslan there. He finds the lamb. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He is the one, the only one worthy to open the seal. And the Lamb saves. The Lamb saves the self-righteous. He saves the self-loathing. All alike, He saves by the power of His blood. Presbytery. I got a chance to talk to Ross Haverhalls. Paul's older, much taller brother. And uh, Ross is a prison minister. He preached a sermon, a profound sermon to us. And he made an observation there of something that really surprised him. The difference between what he thought it would be like to minister to men behind bars and what it was really like. He said that when I, I, I went in, I thought that what I was going to find was a lot of people who were really lawless. Right? I'm going to, to basically the place where they keep all the lawbreakers, and I was expecting them to be lawbreakers. What I found was that that what men in prison struggle with, with with men who come to faith in prison, what they struggle with is not their lawlessness, it's their legalism. That the danger is to become self-righteous, legalistic, that sort of thing. That made a kind of sense to me psychologically. I thought, well, yeah, I mean, if you thought... Breaking the rules had ruined my life. I'm going to start keeping the rules, and that's how I'm going to save my life. But he said, you know, it's not that way. When I asked him about it, he said, he had a theory that it had to do with this, that that men in prison are always on display. That when you're in prison, eyes are always on you. If you come to faith in prison, you don't come to church and, 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 and act good and then go home and do what you want. You are constantly on display. And when you're on display, what you do is you try to look as good as you can look. The irony being that so many of us are the same. Prisoners. Prisoners in these futile ways. Prisoners in this world. 
saved by the grace of the Lamb, always on display, and as a result, always trying to look good. Tendency, a proneness towards self-righteousness, despite the fact that ironically we were saved by grace, by His righteousness. Self-righteous moralists, religious people, people who believe that they can be saved by living a spotless life and that is within their reach, that self-righteousness, the Lamb conquers. He crushes it. He humbles us to show us how much we rely on Him. And to the self-loathing and the despairing who see the spotless Lamb and think, I can never be that way, He lifts us up. He fills us. We can't measure up without grace, but God doesn't expect us to measure up without grace. It is only through grace that we can ever measure up. Only through grace that we can ever live the life we are called to live. So in order to do what we must do, to be men and women of action, we must know certain things to be true. We must know that we are saved by a spotless Lamb whose blood has made atonement for us and that no work of ours needs to try to imitate that work. We follow after Him because of the Lamb, because of what the Father has given to the Son. We live not self-righteously and not self-loathingly. We can live with faith and hope in God. He has shown us what He intends for us by doing what He has done for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.